before I get into today's text, uh, let's just pray. Father God, I pray you will be present here, Lord God. Uh, be with me, Lord God, while I preach. I pray that I will only speak the truth, Lord God, and that your spirit will be at work, Lord God, and that we will all have soft hearts uh, to hear you, Lord God, and to respond to you faithfully. In Jesus' name, amen. So just before we get into today's passage, I briefly want to put uh, the event in the context of what's been happening thus far in Mark. So Jesus has been preaching and teaching and performing miracles all over Judea, right? He had, he had recently appointed his 12 disciples, we talked about that last week. Large crowds were starting to follow him from all around. Uh, we even read in verse 20 uh, that he couldn't even stop to eat. There were so many people there who wanted a piece of Jesus. But he had also started to make some enemies. The Jewish elite, uh, they were plotting ways to stop him because he was a threat to them. He was a threat to their status. He was a threat to their perception of who God is and a, a threat to kind of how they felt they should act. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, when Cole was preaching about uh, Jesus coming and just shaking the foundations of everything, right? That's a great way to put it. Jesus was there, and he was just shaking the foundations of the people in Judea, and things were starting to happen. So at this point in time, the event we're going to look at today, uh, Jesus had returned to Capernaum, uh, which is his home base, and we're going to pick things up in chapter 3. Uh, and the scene must have been extremely chaotic, right, if you think about it. The disciples were there. Uh, they had been newly commissioned to preach and cast out demons. Uh, earlier in the chapter, the demons were there tormenting people. The religious leaders, they had came down uh, from Jerusalem to confront Jesus. Uh, Jesus' family was there. They were there to take him away because they thought he was out of his mind. And then we have these large crowds, right? These large crowds that have shown up. There are people who had heard Jesus preach or seen or experienced his uh, power firsthand, and they had started following him. And there was such a great number of them earlier on in the chapter, we read about them ridding a boat so that Jesus, if need be, could avoid getting crushed by the crowds. So with this picture in mind, right, kind of this chaos in Capernaum, all right, we're going to start to pick it up, and we're actually going to pick, up, uh, pick it up at verse 20. So this is chapter 3, verse 20. So, and he, that's Jesus, came home, and the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. When his own people, so that's his family, heard of this, they went out to take custody of him. For they were saying, he has lost his senses. And the scribes, that's a religious elite, who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebub, and he cast out demons by the ruler of demons. So just pause it for a minute. So before we get into the meat of the text, I want to just point out, the scribes' skepticism, it's not entirely wrong. Right? Uh, in the Bible, you know, we're told that we should be testing the Spirit. We're warned about false teachers coming. We're told to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. So when we first encounter Jesus in our lives, like the scribes, right, we should wrestle with the question, who do I believe Jesus is? Right? It's a really good question to wrestle with. In fact, it's the most important question there is. And it's a question that Mark wants to answer in this book, right? Who is Jesus? But where the scribes fail is that they're not going into this discourse with the intention of honestly answering that question. They had already made up their minds that Jesus did not 
fit their idea of what the Savior should be like, and he was a threat to them. So they made, it, made up an excuse that enabled them to reject him. They say that Jesus must be in league with the devil. This really is the scribes just grasping at straws, you know, trying to save face. Because you see what had happened by this point in Jesus' ministry, is that he had demonstrated his power to heal, he had demonstrated his power to cast out demons, and he had done it very publicly. And he had done it often enough that even his enemies were convinced it was legit. Right? They didn't show up accusing Jesus of being a fraud. Right? They knew that he had really, truly he had healed people. They knew that he had really, truly cast out demons. It is likely that at least some of them had witnessed them healing, him healing at least one person, being the man with the withered hand we talked about a few weeks ago. But instead of humbly following Jesus, like the crowds and the disciples did, they tried to find a way to dismiss him, rationalizing it any way they can. And Jesus responds to them. So this is continuing at verse 23. And he, Jesus, called to them, this is uh, called them to himself and began speaking to them in parables. How could Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, the house will not be able to stand. If Satan is risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he is finished. But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man. Then he will plunder his house. Just pause there again. So Jesus is responding to the scribes and he's responding to them with parables. And his response is very gracious. Right? One thing that really struck me as I was thinking about this passage is that Jesus called to them. Right? You have this big crowd there. Right? It is very chaotic. And it is Jesus taking the time to call them out of the crowd to correct them. Uh, personally, I think if someone accused me of being Satan's minion, I wouldn't be so nice. Right? <laughs> But he is, he is trying to enlighten them, and he's trying to show them how foolish their claim is. You know, he points out the obvious, right? That in a war, armies don't run around shooting themselves. And when civil war breaks out, I mean, nobody wins. Typically, it just decimates the nation. And that their, their claim is at one level very foolish. But there's actually something much deeper in these verses that would have set out alarm bells than the heads of the scribes. Uh, I am not a Biblical Languages scholar, uh, but in preparation I read a few commentaries, and one thing that many of them pointed out is that Jesus is making a very strong connection to Isaiah 49. Right? And the scribes who were experts in the scriptures, they would have picked it up. Right? In Isaiah 49, written hundreds of years before Jesus showed up in Judea, it's written, Can plunder be taken from the warriors, or captives rescued from the peers? But this is what the Lord says. Yes, captives will be taken from the warriors, and plunder retrieved from the fierce. I will contend with those who contend with you, with your children, I will save. You see, in Jesus' response to the scribes, he makes it clear that his power over Satan is because he has bound Satan. He has subdued him. And now he is plundering Satan's domain on earth, rescuing his people. Right? He is contending for the people of God. He is, in a way, he is boldly uh, claiming the fulfillment of Isaiah 49, which we read earlier today. We didn't read it all. But it's this glorious passage where we read about prisoners being set free, the hungry being fed, 
thirsty being given water. God himself is there with compassion, comforting his people. And we have seen, or we will see, much of this in Jesus' ministry, where he feeds the crowds that are hungry, he freed people from the bondage of sin and the devil. He had tremendous compassion and comforted those that were hurting. He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. And it leaves you wondering, why didn't the scribes get it? Like, why didn't they get it? I read a quote from uh, Ray Orland about this passage, and he said, Hidden until the time is right, he emerges in history to conquer, not by military might or cultural imperialism, but with the force of truth. This is Jesus. We are not told if the scribes that were there, if they were convinced or not, by the truth of what Jesus said, uh, and by the truth of Jesus' claims. And in some ways, for us today, it doesn't mean that. But what does matter is who do we believe Jesus is? Is he the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy? God in the flesh or not? From the lack of response of the scribes to what Jesus says, and from what Jesus says next, though, it seems as though the scribes remained in their transient, but also without any answer. So continuing at verse 22, Jesus continues talking and says, Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an internal sin. As they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Just pause again. When Colton first sent me this passage, uh, I mean, I asked him for a couple of months, uh, months ago, um, I immediately got a little sidetracked by the unforgivable sin. And I wondered, do I want to kick this back to Colton or not? But uh, it had initially led me to miss something absolutely beautiful in this text, right? I mean, just absolutely amazing. And that is that God declares the forgiveness of all sins, right? He declares the forgiveness of all sins. J.C. Ryle wrote about this text and said, his words fall lightly on the ears of many people, uh, persons. They see no particular beauty in them. But to the man who is alive in his own sinfulness, it's a great line, the man who is alive to his own sinfulness, and deeply sensible of his need for mercy, his words are sweet and precious. All sins shall be forgiven. Sins of youth and age, sins of head and hand and tongue and imagination, the sins against all of God's commandments, the sins of persecutors like Saul, the sins of idolaters like Manasseh, the sins of open enemies of Christ like the Jews who crucified him, the sins of backsliders from Christ like Peter, all, all may be forgiven. The blood of Christ can cleanse it all away. The righteousness of Christ can cover all and hide all in God's eyes. And this should give us tremendous comfort that Jesus has taken away all of our sins, right? And that for those of us who are in Christ, there is no sin we can do that the blood of Christ cannot cover. The Apostle Paul is a perfect example. He describes himself as a blasphemer. He was complicit in murder. He persecuted the church. But unlike the scribes that we read about here, when he came face to face with Jesus on the road to Damascus, he humbled himself and followed him 
and his sins, which were many, were taken away from him. So for us, we can have confidence that we have or will be forgiven the worst things we have or ever will do to live without shame. It was Paul himself who wrote, you know, very aware of his own sinfulness. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. So that leads us to the very important question. What is the unforgivable sin? Every commentator I read said the same thing. He said, it's not a single act you do, but it is a state of being. It is a state of being. It is the scribes. They had seen the power of Jesus. They had seen his mighty acts. They had the truth told to them by Jesus himself. They witnessed the same grace and beauty that led many people and the twelve disciples to drop everything and follow him. They knew the scriptures and the prophecies that pointed to Jesus. Then Jesus himself, himself preached to them. But they hardened their hearts and they turned their backs on him. And that is the unforgivable sin. To see and experience Jesus to the point where ignorance can no longer be claimed, but is still rejected. They did not heed the words of Psalm 95, which we read earlier. Today, you hear his voice. Do not harden your hearts. My hope and prayer for the people of Redemption Church, uh, you know, and especially for kids whose faith is just new or forming, is that, that we will not have hard hearts like the scribes, right? But we will have soft hearts, hearts that hear Jesus, that allow Jesus to shape us and guide us and mold us. Hearts that are humble and obedient to the King, just kind of recognizing what He did for us, right? And we can all be like the scribes in some ways, right? We all can be. We all have a picture of God in our head that we want that is not perfectly aligned with the God who is, right? Uh, George Sinclair, I mean, once when he was preaching, and it stuck with me ever since, he said, we all have parts of our doctrine that are wrong, Right? Uh, and someday we're all going to stand before God and find out what we have wrong, right? And, and that's not to say that doctrine's not important. It really is. But what it does mean is that we should all be open to the Holy Spirit working through the church and through the scriptures to constantly be reforming us and shaping us and constantly correcting us and growing us. So just continuing at verse 31. Then his mother and brothers arrived, and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Answering them, he said, Who are my mother and my brothers? Looking about at those who were sitting around him, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister. So here we see Jesus' family. Uh, most people think that Joseph had died before Jesus' ministry. So it's just his brothers and Mary. And they don't go in. They are standing back a little bit. And we really don't know what their intentions are. Uh, was it to save Jesus from the authorities? Was it to save their family's reputation? Did they think Jesus was going to make them an outcast from Jewish social life? Uh, did they just think he was crazy or some combination of them all? You know that Mary would have already known that Jesus was special, right? You know, she had been visited by an angel before he was born, right? 
Uh, she was a virgin when he was conceived. Really, everything about his birth, uh, the miracles she saw, like water being in, uh, turned into wine, started Jesus' ministry. Uh, and when he was brought to the, the temple uh, to be dedicated, I mean, both Simeon and Anna prophesied about him. And, you know, and we know in the end that ultimately, you know, Jesus' brothers and mothers, you know, they became Christians. But at this point in time, they're clearly having some doubts about things, and that Jesus' ministry was not at all what she was expecting. Now, Jesus' response, it, it may sound a bit rude, right? Saying, who are my mother and my brothers? As he's a bit dismissive of them. But there are just a few things I want to pull out of the passage. The first is that Jesus is important, and so is his work. And it's certainly more important to Jesus than what his family thought about him. Right? And it's to our great benefit that Jesus continued on his mission with such fervor that he would not let himself be distracted by anything. Second thing, and it's closely related, is that opposition to the gospel can take many forms. It could be like the scribes who are just openly hostile to Jesus, right? And actively looking for a way to shut him down. Or it could be well-wishing family who think that someone, you know, in their family following Jesus is detrimental and just wish they, you know, keep it to themselves and fit into a mold that they feel would help them do better in their life, right? Why in the world would you want to plant a church in Peter and so on, right? And I mean, these situations can definitely be a strain. And that sort of, there's some encouragement in what Jesus says next. Right? He knows this. And he says to them, and what he says is amazing. He looks around at all of those who are sitting around him and says, Behold, my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. See, when we become Christians, we are put in a new family. The church here on earth, and later the church in heaven. And Jesus comes to us as a brother, right? And the new spiritual family is definitely closer, truer, more real than any blood relation can be. It's going to last all of eternity. You know, and my hope for Redemption Church is that we will be a family, right? That we will be in each other's lives, right? That we will sharpen and strengthen one another. That we will encourage one another. That we will be there for one another, that we will speak hard truths to one another when hard truths are needed. And that we'll always be willing and eager to bring new people in, right? From every tribe, from tongue, old, young, new Christians, old Christians. So just in closing, I want to briefly return to our Isaiah passage. Uh, and to be very honest, it's actually really hard to pull out from the ESV. But in other chapters, it's, it's, or other translations, it's much more obvious. There's this thread that runs through the entire thing about the family of God being restored, right? And it was originally written to encourage the Israelites that there's going to be a greater fulfillment. And it's, it's referred to as their inheritance earlier in the chapter, right? So we read lines like, this from the NIV, right? They will never hunger nor thirst, nor will the desert heat or sun bear down on them. That Jesus will be there with compassion. That our children, the children, will hasten back, right? He, he talks, or Isaiah talks about people lifting up their eyes and looking around as, as all the children gather and come back into the land, right? In verse 21, there's a series of questions where Isaiah writes, Who bore me these? I was left all alone, but these, where have they came from? 
And God answers back, saying, You will beckon the nations, and the sons and daughters will all be carried back to the people of God. And it's really this tremendous picture. And, and again, it's you need to spend some time thinking about it, right? The greatest family reunion that's ever going to happen, right? Where Isaiah talks about even the land gets too small because so many people, and, and he keeps referring to it's the children coming back, it's the children coming back, it's the children being carried back. And this is ultimately our inheritance as people of God, right? To ultimately be gathered together as one big restored family, you know, without sin or pain, or strife or bickering or petty squabbles, and just to live out our lives, right, in eternity with Jesus our brother. So let's just pray. Father God, just thank you that you are a king, Lord God. And I thank you that you have given us scriptures that we may know you, Lord God. And I just pray that we'll evermore, Lord God, just have soft hearts to continually be formed by you, Lord God. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.